So we're talking about, this is the second talk on the, uh, using the iconography of the Tibetan Wheel of Life. I'm going to try to share uh, the image that we've been, I've been using, although it doesn't seem to come up right now. So at some point, I encourage everybody to uh, Google Tibetan Wheel of Life. There's an image back here over my shoulder. This is a classic depiction of samsara, of the the ever-changing, ever-evolving movement of life. And it's helpful to look into it more deeply for several reasons. First off, at the core, of that movement is greed, anger, and ignorance, is our desire to get things and get things and get things and to get rid of things and get rid of things. And it's just like a pump. We pull in and push out and pull in and push out and pull in and push out. And that creates energy. That creates motion. That creates movement. So at the core of this wheel is movement. And that is our life. Our life is nothing but movement. It's always moving. Always moving. Dechen just put a link to a image on the chat. It's always moving. So it's helpful to both understand a little bit about that movement. It's helpful to understand a little bit about the liberation from the suffering of that movement. Samsara is the endless cycle of becoming. Now all of us, when we are sitting carefully and looking very intimately at our hearts, you can feel a a movement forward. I mean, it works at different levels. The brain anticipates and is looking forward, or the, we're always kind of alert to what's happening, or there's a, an inner sense of something to be done. There's a movement forward at a very deep level. And that movement forward, in a way, is part of what makes a human being. So that movement is depicted both at the very core of this with the, the rooster, the cock, and the snake, the, the three poisons, the, the pump I was talking about. And it's also depicted on the outside. The wheel is held by, depending upon how you look at it, a demon It's held by the iconographic representation of death. It's held by impermanence. Because what is death but change? Everything is impermanent. 
So the whole wheel, our whole life, our meditation is held in the wheel of impermanence. The good news is we are never ever stuck. We're never ever stuck. So no matter how difficult our situation seems, if we truly understand that everything is in motion, we are not stuck. But it doesn't appear that way. And when it appears that we are stuck, there are six iconographic ways that we can be stuck. In the center of the wheel are, are six realms. Now they can be looked at as psychological realms. They can be looked at as physical places. And they can be looked at as places that we um, can't perceive with our ordinary eye, ordinary mind. So let's look at the six realms of existence, first from a psychological perspective. And they start, we'll start at the very bottom of the circle with the hell realms. Now, when people are in a realm, we all have suffered. We all have been in times when everything looked black and dark. And when we're in that realm, we're not busy comparing. So people may be in a realm that is uh, deep depression, or they may be in a realm with actual torture. But when we're in that realm, usually we're not saying, oh, well, this isn't so bad. Usually when we're caught in a realm, it becomes our reality. We all know that. We all have been sitting and practicing, and we get caught by some thought, idea, and it seems so real. So real. And people often in retreats, uh, especially beginners, will um, be sitting there quietly, their mind will get snagged by something, and suddenly they, they, they've got to leave because whatever their mind fabricated. And as soon as they leave, they step outside of that, they say, well, this is such a big deal. So the lowest realm here, which in a way has the narrowest view, are what we call the hellish realms. The hot hells of anger, the cold hells of envy and jealousy, the cold hells of, of I want to kind of shrink in and keep it all to myself, and the hot hell of anger and resentment. Now, when we look at that, all we can see is from our human vantage point. You know, we know what our particular experience is. But if we look in the world, there are places in the world that are hellish realms. Places that are filled with war and violence. Places where people are beaten. Places where there's not enough to drink. 
places that are, are uh, everything gets taken away, everything gets broken. If we look around the world, there are places in the world that are quite hellish places. So there are hellish states of mind, and there are hellish places that we can look out in the world and see. And then there's also another realm that you know all the all the the Christian literature and the Buddhist literature talks about hellish realms that are so much more terrible than we can conceive of. There is a, um, you know, often people have near-death experience. When people have near-death experiences, often they experience bright light and moving toward the light and moving toward the heavenly realms. But Sam Burkholz, who was the founder of Shambhala Publishing, had a, an experience where he went into a hellish realm. And he actually wrote a book and describes what the hells were like from his very uh, intimate understanding of it. The qualities of hell is hopelessness, interminable suffering. We can't see beyond it. We are tortured and we torture others. And there's a torturing and torturing others. And it goes around and around and around and around. One of the things that all of the uh, Buddhist and other religious literature talks about is that when we are breaking precepts, when we are harming others, if that state of mind of harm, of lack of respect, if it grows and grows and grows and grows, then our mind becomes darker and darker and darker. Or for example, we're in a country and we keep breaking it up, breaking it up, breaking it up, breaking up our food supply, breaking up our, our peace, breaking up our social structure, and we find ourselves degenerating into a place like Syria. So the hellish realms are both psychological, physical, and um, the realm which we hear about into it. The sages and prophets may tell us about. The nice thing about this wheel is nobody is stuck. So one of the things that is very unique and different about Buddhist teaching, Buddhist cosmology, is even if we're in a really dark, dark, hard place, it's going to change. It's impermanent. It can't be sustained. So at the core of Dharma is hope. No matter what place we encounter in our meditation, what place we encounter in our life, what place we can see out in the world, it's in the process of change. Now, each of the six realms, the hellish realm, the Ashura realm, the, um, or the Preta realm, the hungry ghost realm, the animal realm, the demigod realm, the heavenly realm, and the human realm, 
each of the six realms has a Buddha in it. And iconographically, if you look at the Wheel of Life, it'll have a Buddha or a Kuan Yin or Malakateshvara or a Jizo in each of the realms. Because any state that we are in can be converted to wisdom. Often, I'll be talking to people and I'll say, you have gotten a PhD in suffering. And now that you've gotten all of this very hard-earned education, how are you going to turn it to use it? How are you going to benefit others from it? Everything has the ability to be turned to liberation. And so iconographically in this wheel of life, there is a Buddha. Now each of the realms contains the other realms. So we'll go through the other realms briefly before I get back to that point. People who are in dark and hellish places are always wanting, wanting to get out, wanting to be free from suffering, wanting to be free from suffering. And so as their karmic forces move, the next realm is the realm of the hungry ghosts. So the realm of the hungry ghosts is not a realm of full of torture and endless suffering. It's also a realm of blindness. But iconographically, it is depicted as beings with very small mouths and very big bellies that are insatiably hungry, that they, I want, I want, I want. I always think of the realm of addiction. I always think of the realm of the compulsive mind that is constantly buying and getting and wanting and wanting and never satisfied. And the more that we get, you know, the more that dissatisfaction goes. So there is the psychological place in us of just dissatisfaction and trying to fill it with food or with buying things or with sexuality or just we can't ever be satisfied. There are places in the world, there are people in the realms of addiction. There are dark and unhappy realms where people are just thinking about, where is the next fix? Where can I get some more drugs? What do I need to steal in order to get enough money? Who is going to, you know, am I going to be arrested? Or they get thrown into jail or prison, or they get beaten up, or they get raped. Or, and, but there's this wanting, 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 and we engage in unskillful action. We can look out and we can see people who are caught in that realm. So there is a realm of uh, that we can't see. There is a realm that we can know internally, and there is a realm that we can see in the world. Likewise, the next realm is the animal realm. The hallmark of the animal realm in the Buddhist tradition is not really being able to appreciate cause and effect, not being able to um, <clears throat> make real choice, being consumed with food, procreation, 
comfort. And in that realm, like all the other realms, there are many gradations. So we can say that there are animals who are live in a heavenly realm. Pampered pets. And there are animals who live in a hellish realm. Perhaps factory farm chickens. Perhaps animals that are being hunted to extinction. There are animals that are being tortured and there are animals that are running for their lives and there are animals that are kind of comfortably going around their, about their life looking for food and trying to not get eaten. And then there are in that realm pampered pets. So all of the realms will contain elements of all of these. It's not as though they are one undifferentiated thing. We know people who basically act like animals, who all they're interested in is the consuming, not consuming in the sense of craving like the pretas, like the hungry ghost, but in the sense of consuming, you know, more beer, more food, more sleep, more comfort. Don't bug me. And beyond the animal realm, not beyond, but another kind of layer up, as it were, the hellish realms, the mind is very tight and small and withdrawn. And then as we move into the hungry ghost realm, we're looking out. The mind becomes more expansive. It's only looking for certain things, but it's more expansive. As you move into the animal realm, the mind is, is much freer. Look around a much larger environment. can see beyond itself. And as we move into the human realm, the next realm up, we have the capacity for a certain kind of self-reflection, certain kind of space. We have the capacity for watching the nature of our own mind, at least as far as the human realm is concerned. The human realm is marked by a sense, at least, of volition. It's also marked by this constant sense of becoming and becoming and becoming, becoming bigger and better and bigger and better and bigger and better. But it's also a realm of relationship. It's a realm of, <clears throat> of beginning to have uh, goals. It's a realm of struggle, the struggle to, to survive, the struggle to make a living, the struggle to develop oneself. The next level up is the what they call the demigod realm, the titan realm, the realm of, of, of uh, Asuras. I always think of this realm as a certain kind of business person or politician who is aggressive, who's self-centered, who's got all kinds of wealth, but who is greedy and and envious and willing to go to war. 
people who have everything they need and more and yet are still give me accumulating I need to become more well-off self-centered in a very aggressive sociopathic kind of sense filled with jealousy we know business people like this not all but we know we have some very good examples in our culture right now of this very kind of aggressive mind and then the at the last one the larger one is the heavenly realms states of bliss of ease of of the arts of pleasure of comfort of connection each realm gets caught by itself so in the realms of what we call the heavenly realms here the the life is not a problem and we can get whatever we want and there's not much suffering and we can enjoy ourselves enormously we all have hopefully touched places like that in our life days weeks years when everything was just smooth satisfied now what happens and what we can see happening in in our culture there are people in our culture who are extremely wealthy extremely uh, who can go where they want can buy houses can do but in every realm there is suffering one of my friends works in New York City and he was working with someone uh, a fairly rich person who has a house up in the Catskills and he has a an antique car collection and he owned a place across the valley and so every night he would have an antique car brought up in his elevator and displayed up on the valley wall so he could watch it from his house across the valley as he was sitting in the evening you know there are realms that are so um, luxurious that we don't even we can barely even imagine them but every realm has a lot of suffering and the suffering of the heavenly realm is first off it's impermanent we know that it could change. We know that when causes and conditions shift, we might lose everything we have. You know, we have a stock market crash or a recession and suddenly all that was so, uh, we, we relied upon, we thought we were safe, we thought we were secure and suddenly, whoop, gone so from the heavenly realm perspective the fear of losing this heavenly realm can become a kind of terror and in the heavenly realm as every other realm there are there are lower levels and there are upper levels you know there are so there are psychological states that when we have feel heavenly we can look out and we can see realms of luxury and ease and then there are realms 
that are beyond the human imagination, the heavens that the sometimes religious people talk about. So, regardless of where we are, depending upon our causes and conditions, there is a constant movement. And on a practice level, we can do two means two things. It means, first off, as we are practicing and as we encounter different states, each state is impermanent and there's something to be learned from that state. There's something to, there's wisdom in that state. There's wisdom when we have somebody in our Sangha who has been through addiction and has really done their recovery work. They have a wisdom which you cannot get cheaply. Every realm has got wisdom. Every realm has got a Buddha. Every one of our states has a gate of liberation. So, on one hand, this is a very hopeful model. On another hand, it really is, it's about samsara. So it just means that whatever we are choosing to do, how we are directing our mind each moment, we direct our mind, we direct our mind, we direct our mind, we direct our mind toward goodness, we direct our mind toward kindness, we direct our mind toward greed. And there is a momentum that builds up with how we direct our mind. And that momentum begins to shape a life. And we can shape our life based upon the micro decisions that we make over and over and over again. Into a place of wisdom or a place of deep, total despair. What we do with our mind, the fundamental volitional action is how do we turn our attention. So when we're turning our attention toward dislike, hatred, disrespect, that shapes who we become. Now, so we have the, the wheel of life and death here impermanence, fueled by getting and getting rid of. We're never stuck. Each realm is mixed, so we all know humans who are, you know, pretty heavenly realms, and we know humans who are pretty hellish realms. There are places in the world that are hellish and heavenly, and there are realms that we can't see. So here's the next piece. In the Buddhist tradition and in the meditation traditions, we talk about the the Dharma eyes. There are different eyes, different ways of seeing, different levels of understanding. So the first eye is our physical eye, the one that we all are so intimately familiar with. And of course, you know, it can be developed. Some people can see 
thousands of colors and some people can see no colors. Some people are really very alert to changes in their environment. Some people can really appreciate trees and plants and some people are completely oblivious to, to the mess in their apartment. The first level of seeing is our ability to see the ordinary world. And that's not a given. There are people who can't see the ordinary world. There are people who lose the ability to see the ordinary world. There are people who, who are born blind. The eye of flesh, the ability to see form. The next level, level, the next place of refinement is as we are practicing, as our mind is slowing down, as we are more and more present, the crusted, fixed views, the filters that we see the world through, and we all have our filters, begin to soften, begin to crack. And we can see the world in a different way. We're not just seeing the world of form, but we can begin to actually watch the movement of emotion. We can begin to see motivation. We can begin to see what's underneath the surface of people, the coming and going. As the mind clears up, when the mind is fairly gross, we can see dirt by the side of the road. But as the mind becomes more refined, as we become more sensitive, as we become more present, our awareness becomes deeper. We can see beyond the surface. We can begin to see motivation and movement. We can see the arising of things. We all have had that experience begin to understand where things are headed. The next eye, which is relevant to this, which is the one we've been talking about, the one that can really truly see impermanence. You know, in, in this world, people are just trying so hard to make something that will last, that make something that will be sustainable. But if we're looking clearly, it's all in flux. It's all in flux. It's all in flux. Our life is in flux. And there are other levels. I think I've, I'm, I've exceeded the, uh, my time at this point. So we'll continue with this uh, uh, tomorrow and we'll finish up the uh, Tibetan book of, or Tibetan wheel of life tomorrow. I always, often think of it as the wheel of experience. And it's all about practice, being present, never being stuck, refining our attention, seeing the true nature of things, liberating beings, and appreciating that our actions are important. Okay. Thank you all very much. That's all I can do this evening. <laughs>